Thanks for tuning in to week one of our new series, Ruth. We are honored and blessed to have you join us for our online worship experience. It is our intent to share God's word with our community and with viewers like you. If you're from the greater Savannah area and you don't have a church home, we would love for you to visit us at 1624 East 38th Street on the corner of 38th and B Road. Remember, resources like this are meant to be supplemental, so get yourself to church. If you like what you see today, you can visit us at our website at citychurch.life or click the link in the description. I have the privilege of preaching this morning, and, and it really is truly a privilege to be able to bring the Word of God, uh, and it is whatever God wants to say today. You know, I, I feel like He has given me something to say, but it's really Him uh, this morning and not me. And today I get to start us off on a new series called Ruth. Uh, I'm super excited about it. I, I even texted Pastor Jim last night as I was wrapping up my sermon. I'm just telling him I'm getting pumped for this. So I hope that you came in expecting today because Ruth is such a powerful story. Uh, it's so cool. And today, I want to be talking about identity. I'm just covering chapter one today, and we're going to be talking about identity. So please keep that in mind. I'd encourage you, if you are a note taker, pull out your notebook or your phone or whatever you take notes on. For me, I feel like this helps me to retain the information a little bit better. And that's something that you can kind of go back to throughout the week as you meditate on the scriptures in your own personal time with God. Uh, so first, uh, Looks like I hit the wrong button. Oh, can we get that cleared? Thank you so much. We have an awesome pro team. Thank you, Kat. Come on, guys. Can we clap for Kat? Am I going to be the only one? All right. Uh, so I love our pro team. They do such a great job putting all this together. Uh, so first, I want to give you guys just a little bit of context for the book of Ruth because uh, it is so chock full of stuff. And even chapter one is kind of context for the entire book. And so I wanted to start off by just asking a, a couple questions and pointing to a few things that we see in the, the book of Ruth. The first is, where is God? Because up to this point in the Old Testament, God has an active role in every single book of the Bible. We see him speak, we see the miraculous happen, and we see God working with power and authority in the lives of people. And while God is present in the book of Ruth, we do not see him acting in the same way. We don't see any miracles. We don't see God speaking, but he is present. And that's one of the really cool things I think about the book of Ruth is that even though God is not shown in the same way, uh, that, that we still see him at work. Uh, we also don't see any miracles throughout the book of Ruth, at least not what we would traditionally consider miracles. Those are not here. And so uh, we see God work through the lives of ordinary people. There are no giant slayers in this story, right? These are, these are ordinary people going through ordinary circumstances. This is real events with additional meaning. So, so do keep in mind that this is history, right? This is the history of the nation of Israel in this story, but there's also additional meaning for you and I. And I believe it's an invitation to step into the shoes of the characters that inhabit this story. Because as we go through this, I believe that you'll be able to relate to some of these characters, to what they're going through, because they are ordinary people. They're like you and me. And the story that they go through here is gonna hit close to home for some of us. And it's real, but there is that meaning for you and I and the, option, the opportunity, I should say, to step into their shoes. So I'm going to start off, of course, Ruth 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. 
he and his wife and his two sons. And as I was just going through the first couple of verses in Ruth, I realized it's kind of like the opening crawl, right? Where maybe you see something like in Star Wars. Guys, this is actually the first couple verses of Ruth right here. It's amazing what you can find on Google, right? But really, I felt like this was so appropriate because you know how when you're getting into one of those movies, and it may not be Star Wars, there's lots of movies that have just those couple sentences as you're starting the film that kind of set the stage, right? And so I want you to have that in mind as we begin in the book of Ruth because what, what's happening just in these first couple verses is setting the stage. Just like in Star Wars, you learn that there's a rebellion, there's an empire, there's this big conflict. You are getting a lot of information just in the first couple of verses. So I'm going to camp out on those for a little bit this morning because I am a context nerd. I'm serious. Like, I want to have all the context. I want to know how it's all connected. And so you guys are stuck with me for the next three hours this morning. Oh, you think that's... Somebody's excited about three hours. The rest of you think that's a joke. So, so here's the first bit of context for you. Just this first line, in the days when the judges ruled. This is significant because this is a time when there is no king in Israel. It's kind of like Israel's dark ages, to be honest. There are some really, really horrific stories that come from the days of the judges. Uh, judges 21, verse 25, it's actually the last verse in the book of Judges. And uh, depending upon whether or not you're on a paper versus digital Bible, you would read this immediately before reading the book of Ruth. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that is the theme of the entire book of Judges. And so this kind of sets the stage for us in the book of Ruth because we, we understand because of this that, that Israel is in a little bit of chaos during the time of this story. There's lawlessness because there is no king. No king means no justice. And we see all of the tribes kind of doing their own thing. Yes, they are still considered one nation, but they are really disconnected from one another. And there is even a little bit of civil war that takes place in the book of Judges. We see them killing one another and then repenting because they're like, oh, those were our brothers. And there's so much conflict. There are horrific stories of people who have rejected God and lost their identity. The book of Judges is filled with terrible stories of murder, of child sacrifice, and just ugly, ugly things. And so that sets the stage for the book of Ruth. Everybody's like, oh, Ruth, a love story. But it doesn't start off like a love story, right? It starts in a very, very dark period in Israel's history. And I believe that this, this idea of identity is so core to chapter one especially, but the book of Ruth as a whole. And, and it's just at the right time because in the midst of this time of lost identity, there's some identity that's going to be found. Uh, the next item I wanna point out is that there's a famine in the land in verse one. Now a famine is actually evidence of Israel's sin because if you go read the books of the law in the Old Testament, God promises that if Israel is faithful to him, then they will have plenty then their crops will grow, they will flourish as a people. But if there's a famine, that's evidence of Israel's sin because God said, if you don't honor me, if you don't serve me, if you follow after other gods, then things are gonna get bad. And so that there is a famine is just more evidence uh, in addition to it being set in the time of judges that things are bad. 
and that, again, while God is present, he is not active in their lives at this moment because there are times throughout Israel's history where it seems like God has left. He's not really, but they have chosen to turn their backs on him. Uh, The final thing I wanted to talk about in verse one is this idea of uh, a sojourn in the country of Moab. Now, Now, this is not necessarily a vacation, Okay, this is not like, oh yeah, we're gonna go just take this trip really quickly. Uh, this is a long-term thing. In verse two, it actually says they went to Moab and they remained there. So this was a permanent move, or at least they thought of it as a permanent move. And they're going the wrong way. As we study the history of the nation of Israel, we know that Moab is one of the countries that they had to pass around or pass through to get to the promised land. So our story starts off with clear evidence of Israel's sin, lawlessness, and lack of leadership, and returning to the things that they had been freed from. It does not set the stage for a very good story, at least not one that you know, brings lots of hope and joy, right? This is not a romantic comedy. They're going the wrong way. They're going back to Moab because Moab is supposed to be in the past, but this family is going back to it. So I wanna talk for a moment about Moab's identity because again, I I feel like identity is such a core concept in this chapter. Who is Moab? Um, The the Bible is full of really origin stories of all kinds of different nations. Israel, of course, is the one that we know the most, but God is the creator of all people. Israel is his chosen nation, but God gives us insight into the creation of all kinds of people in the Middle East during uh, the Old Testament, during the time of the Old Testament. And Moab is rough, you guys. It it has a really rough start. Moab is actually, as a nation, born of rape. Now, I I know what you're thinking when you think rape, but this one's a little bit different. This is actually a daughter raping her father. Got him drunk. If you look in Genesis chapter 19, it says he didn't know when she laid down or when she got up. It was a dark, dark time. Like That's the origin of this people. Who wants to be known for that? Moab is the nation that bought Balaam's curse. Anybody remember the story of Balaam's donkey? Like, so so the children's church version is like, oh, God made a donkey talk. Look at how powerful God is. But that's just what happened on the way to the curse. Because you see, Balaam was known for whatever he speaks over someone, that thing comes true. And Moab, as a nation, was so intimidated by the nation of Israel that they hired Balaam to come and curse the nation of Israel. That's in Numbers chapters 22 through 24. I'd encourage you to go back and read these stories on your own. Uh, The cool thing is that God got a hold of Balaam through a talking donkey, and he told him, you're only gonna say what I want you to say. So while Moab hired Balaam to curse Israel, the only thing God allowed him to speak over Israel was blessing. So God is watching out for Israel even when they're not necessarily aware of it. But this is who Moab is so far. They led Israel astray. Here's the really wild thing, guys. I hadn't connected this before. Immediately after Numbers 24, which concludes the story of Balaam's curse or blessing as it turned out, at the beginning of the very next chapter, Moab tries a different tactic and they actually convince the Israelites to intermarry with them, something that God had warned Israel not to do because he knew that it would lead Israel astray. As soon as they started intermarrying, they started serving other gods. And it just was a downward spiral from there. 
Finally, in the book of Judges, we also learn that for a period of 18 years, Moab ruled over Israel. They had defeated them and subjected them, and they ruled over them. And so Moab is like, this is not where you would want to go, right? This is a really bad idea. Going to Moab's not a good idea. It's kind of like, you know, the Revolutionary War has just finished, and you're like, you know what? I'm going back to Britain. Got some friends over there. Going to go hang out, have some tea. No. No, this, this is a really bad idea. Why would you go to Moab? So that's why this is so, so weird in this very first verse to see these people, God's chosen people say, nah, I'm going to go back the way I came. It is so weird. It's not a good idea. So that's just verse one. Verse two tells us a little bit about the family. The name of the man was Elimelech. Say that five times fast. The name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So again, they went there not intending to come back. So I want to talk about names for a moment because we are given the names of several characters in this passage. And uh, if, if you know the story, like at least three of these people, we don't need to know their names because they ain't around long, right? So what's the point in naming them? And I believe that names are important. Names are a way that throughout the Bible, God tells us more about the people in Scripture and he tells us more about himself. So I want to go through quickly and talk about those names. First, I want to talk about this concept of a true name, though. Has anybody ever heard of the concept of a true name? Nobody. Wow. Okay, so, so this idea of a true name is something that shows up a lot in popular culture. You see it in kind of like fantasy TV shows or movies. You also see it in mythology, you see it in philosophy, and you see it in religion. And this idea of a true name is that knowing something's true name gives you power over it, or knowing something's true name makes it more powerful. It depends on which way you're looking at it, but there is power in a name. This is why, uh, as Pastor Jim was helping us understand last week, God took Abram and renamed him Abraham, because there is power in that name, because a name is an identity. A name is an identity. Uh, it's part of who we are, and, and the Israelites as a culture understood this. All throughout the Old Testament, you see stories of names being bestowed upon a child at birth or later in life when God changes somebody's name and names are their identity. It describes them. It describes their relationship with God and how they live. So I want to talk for a minute about names and I want to tell you about the Hannon boys. Uh, now, initially, that, that's like, you know, the good old boys, the Hannon boys. That was like as Southern as I get you guys. So, thank you. It still wasn't good enough, though, was it, Jim? <laughs> so, so let me tell you about the Hannon boys. My last name is Hannon, and I have two brothers. We were the Hannon boys, John, Caleb, and Nate. John's the oldest, I'm the middle, and Nate's the youngest. And the Hannon boys uh, were very, very intentionally named. See, because my parents bought into this idea of a name having significance. And uh, my mom to this day will tell you that she gave us names, she and my dad gave us names, so that even when people were speaking against us, they would be speaking blessing over us. So I want to say that one more time, just let it sink in. If, if you have a name that is given to you with intention, people will speak blessing over you, even though they are attempting to curse you. It's powerful. 
it's really powerful. So I wanna tell you real quick about the names that my brothers and I have. First is John, God is gracious. Even when you're mad at him, you're saying, God is gracious. Doesn't, doesn't quite work at the same time, does it? So if, if your name is John, if you're another John in the room, and I happen to know one, God is gracious. God is gracious. Caleb, depending upon where you look, means mighty warrior. Now, mighty warrior is what I was told growing up. In Hebrew, it's actually something different, and I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but I even had a little card as a kid that said, my name is mighty warrior. Right? Anybody else have, have something like that, like a, a name? Yeah. So like I grew up with that. And then of course the story of Caleb in the Bible, there's the story of going into the land and him being one of the two spies that returned with a positive report. But I was like, yeah, that's cool. But uh, the part where he goes and kills the giants, that's what I wanna identify with, right? Yeah, so like this is what I grew up thinking, like this is who I am. This is how I'm named. And then Nate, short for Nathaniel, gift of God, right? I see Nate back there. Not my brother, Nate, another Nate, brother from another mother. <laughs> Gift of God. Gift of God. How cool is that? How cool is that that when someone is speaking over you or even saying your name, they are saying something powerful? And uh, I want to talk just for a moment uh, about what names can do in speaking life and death. And to do that, I'm going to invite my friend Simon Stevens up on the platform to talk about baby Stevens. So Simon, you and Mary have really bought into this idea that, that names have power, right? Yeah. So, so tell me about the baby's name. Babies do at the end of July, yes. right? So tell everybody about, about the baby's name. Yeah, like Caleb, like the beautiful man was saying, I... Twice now. <laughs> yeah, I, we, we're, we both are really invested in the idea of like identity, identities matter, names have power, and so... We um, labored for you know, as long as we knew he was a boy. We knew um, we needed a really good name for him. And one of the things I really wanted him to have is a, a name that had a lot of weight and a lot of power behind it. Um, but and um, a, a lot of other qualifications that I don't know. We, I'm just not I don't need to take too much time. You're fine, man. Um, but yeah, um, we eventually. Um, among the cosmetic things we wanted to have, we came across this name, Aziah, A-Z-A-I-A-H. It's not a name you see every, no, it's not a name you hear every day, but you will, so get used to it. Um, and so, the name on a surface level, it means powerful, um, but digging deeper, it's um, even more beautiful. It means Yahweh is my strength, and that is, um, that's, yeah, exactly, it's very good. And um, I'm just so excited for like the rest of his life that, and even before he he's in the world running around, um, that is something that's constantly being said um, over him. Um, and David, um, which means beloved, and it's um, so those two things combined, it's a very exciting combination. And then he's a Stevens because that's how you do it. <laughs> and um, the name Stevens, um, baby Stevens, means. Um, it's the wreath, the laurel crown of victory. Basically, um, you kind of like the whole Romans when you win instead of a trophy, you get foliage. You run your scalp, um, but it's uh, it's more powerful. It's more has a lot more weight behind it. And you can think about um, Paul's illustration of like running the race with endurance. That's kind of what we want him to embody. So a powerful, loved, 
Chandler. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, Simon. Yeah, why don't you take that one? So I, I love that Simon and Mary have bought into this, and Isaiah is not even born yet, right? And I just, I, to me, it's so powerful to have his father come up and share that name with you. I could have done it, but even in, in the Bible, we see that the father is bestowing this name on his child. And so Simon and Mary have chosen to tell their son, even before birth, Yahweh is your strength, you are powerful, you are beloved, and you are a victor, right? And one of those names he's born into regardless. That is powerful. And can you imagine knowing your whole life that that is who you are? I'm so excited for Isaiah because his parents have been so intentional in selecting that name to speak life over him. I'm so excited for them. It's so cool. And so I, I want to encourage you to look at names a little bit differently. And we're going to take a closer look at names in scripture here. But first, let's think through your name, right? I told you what my name is. Do you know what your name means? Yeah, some of you guys do. Some of you may not. Names aren't as important in our society as they once were. But I believe it has to do with your identity. Because as Isaiah is going to know, as I know, as many of you know, your name can speak life or death over you. And so let's talk about these names in scripture. I want to talk about Elimelech, Naomi, Malan, Kilian, and then even the name of uh, Bethlehem, the town that they lived in. Oh, and, and Moab as well. Now, I already told you the origins of Moab as a nation. The name lines right up with it. Moab as a name means of his father, or in some translations, from father, just kind of reinforcing the circumstances around the birth of that nation. It's just kind of horrific. I don't want to be known as that. Elimelech, this is actually a really, really cool name. It means, my God is king. Now, remember, the Israelites knew what a name meant. They didn't just name their children arbitrarily after fruit or something like that, right? My God is king. And so even before they were married, Naomi knew this is the name of her husband, right? My God is king. Ladies, if, if, if you knew what... A, a name meant and that it had power and that it maybe even spoke about the man that you were going to marry, would you consider marrying a man whose name is my God is king? Right? That's pretty cool. I like that. But the problem is that Elimelech is denying his identity. See, because Elimelech is the one who leads his family, he's the one that makes the choice to go back to Moab. His name means my God is king, but he doesn't live like it. So, I, I can't say for sure, but if, if I were in Naomi's position, I might be a little bit disappointed, you know? Thought that I was with this guy named my God is king, and he's turning his back on God and saying, we're going to go back to this other land, this place that hated us. We're going to live there instead. Naomi is a beautiful name. It means my delight. And, and thinking about this, I can't help but think, of a little girl with her daddy, right? The apple of my eye is kind of what we would look at that as today. Any, any daughters have that kind of relationship with their father? I see you there, Caitlin. I know that. I know how your daddy loves you, right? It's beautiful. We love to see that, right? We love to see when a father dotes upon his daughter, right? And so that's the kind of name that Naomi has is my delight. How cool is that to grow up hearing that that's your name? Then we have Malan which means sick. 
not as an ill, or excuse me, as an ill, not as in cool. At one time, sick meant cool, uh, but maybe I'm dating myself with that one. <laughs> so, as an ill, sick, or sickly. Elimelech really knows how to name his son, doesn't he? And then there's his brother Killian, which means pining. So clearly he's popular with the ladies. These are terrible names. Who would name their children pining or sick, right? Unfortunately, these names are probably a little bit more accurate, as you'll see as we move through the story. Uh, then there's the name Bethlehem, and this is a great name. Bethlehem means house of bread. But the irony is not lost on me that famine has overtaken the house of bread, right? The, Bethlehem is supposed to be this place of provision, but because of Israel's sin, famine has overtaken the house of bread. Names have power. Names can tell you about an individual. They can tell you about a place. And so I encourage you to change your thinking, if, if you're not already thinking that way, about names, because names are part of identity. So we have the names of our characters here. It says they went into the country of Moab and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Right off the bat, there goes Elimelech. My God is king. Living a lie leads to death. Now, it doesn't say that God struck him down. We don't know how he died. But I do believe that in his choice to leave the land of the promise and return to a land that they were wandering and lost in, he is rejecting the identity that has been bestowed upon him, right? He's not living as God is king, and living a lie leads to death. Now, neuroscience actually tells us the same thing, that if you choose to have toxic thinking or negative thinking, and I use the word choose very intentionally because we choose what we think about. We choose what we think about, and if you choose to believe a lie, or you choose to believe things that are negative about yourself, you know what? Our thoughts influence our actions, influence our words, influence our lives. So if you think of yourself in a certain way, it's gonna happen. Our thoughts have power, names have power. And living a lie, rejecting the identity that God so desperately wants you to have, ultimately leads to death, it leads to suffering. You're not going to experience anything good if you are rejecting the good things that God has for, if you're rejecting his truth. So let me ask this question. What if I am not my name? Because I, I was struggling with this just a little bit. As I mentioned before, I grew up hearing that Caleb means mighty warrior. And I'm like, yeah, mighty warrior. That sounds awesome. That's who I am. Um, but if you look in Hebrew, uh, there, there's a little bit of a debate around it, but most scholars will tell you Caleb means dog. I'm like, hmm. That does not sound as cool. Uh, and, and so I, I struggle with this a little bit, and it occurred to me that, that maybe you struggle with this a little bit, right? What if, what if you have a name that you don't like the meaning of? What if you have a name that maybe is something like Malin or Killian or something that you're like, I, I understand what it means, but I don't want that. My wife, Crystal, went through something very similar with her own name. Um, Crystal Dawn is a beautiful name, Crystal Dawn Hannon, formerly Marchinsky, but she's been Hannon for over 10 years now, so that's the one that's gonna stick. Um, but she, she had a really hard time as a child because uh, she is one of three girls. She is Crystal, and her sisters are Christina and Kimberly. 
uh, each of those names, uh, Crystal thought, had more meaning, more significance than hers. And so if, if you've ever experienced this thing of, you know, who, who am I? And, and you do value names, and you look at your name, and you say, God, what do I do with this? Well, Crystal reached this place, and, and so she was praying about it and studying Scripture, and, and then God pointed her to a verse that helped her totally reinterpret how she views herself, right? Now, Crystal means clarity, and Dawn is like the rising sun. So her name means clear, bright morning, which is beautiful, I think. And it took her a while to get to this place where, where God spoke to her and said, your name has meaning. You are my clear, bright morning. That's beautiful, right? And that's what she is to me. She brings so much clarity into my life. She brings so much joy into my life. I, I wouldn't be who I am today without her. But for a while, she was in this place saying, I don't feel like my name fits. So if that's something that you've struggled with, then, then let me tell you that God sees things differently. God speaks to who you are. So even if you have a name that maybe you feel like doesn't fit, take it to God. Better yet, don't just you know, ask an open-ended question and say, okay, God, what, what do you want to name me? Because I believe sometimes he'll answer that. I've actually known people who God has said, this is your name. This is who you are. But we can also look directly at scripture because God tells us in his word who we are. So even though my name, depending upon how you look at it, means mighty warrior or dog, I know that God sees me as mighty warrior, right? Because he sees me as more than a conqueror, right? That's what his word says about me, and it says it about you as well, right? So let God speak to who you are if you're in this place of, of identity or confusion and you don't know who you are. The problem with Elimelech is that he did not live by his name or listen to God, right? So in this case, two strikes you're out because first he had a name that had great heritage, great meaning. He didn't live by it. Second, he didn't listen to God because God had said, you don't need Moab anymore. You're going beyond Moab. You're going to the promised land. He didn't listen. So we have hope today in that we can have a true name from God that tells us who we are. And we also can see from his word and through prayer how God sees us. So we know that Elimelech has died and left Naomi with her two sons. Uh, however, maybe there's a bright spot because these two sons, they, they got married. It says they took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Now, it sounds good, but it's actually another bad idea because God commanded them not to marry foreign women. Once again, the Moab, Moabites, years ago in Israel's history, married the Israelites, and the intermarriage brought sin, not, not because of the marriage relationship itself, but because it led them to serve other gods. Because Moabites were among those people that were doing things like child sacrifice. God is not about that. So they took these Moabite wives, and I want to talk a little bit about their names as well. Uh, so first, let's talk about Orpah. Orpah means gazelle. And to be honest, we don't know very much about Orpah, so perhaps this means she was graceful like a gazelle, or maybe she had a really long neck. I don't know. Um, so we don't know a whole lot about Orpah. Ruth means friendship. And this is a beautiful name. And as we get further into this series, you will see why this is such a fitting name for Ruth. It means friendship. And then 
They got married, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman, that's Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. Life sucks, and then you die, right? At least that's, that's what culture tries and tells us sometimes, right? So first, there's a famine. Okay, we're going to get away from the famine. Oh, then her husband dies. Then her sons get married, but to foreign women, which she probably knows really shouldn't have happened, and then both of her sons die. What has is, what is she got to live for? She has nothing, especially in society at that time. Uh, Israel was unique in a nation in that Israel valued women. Most nations around them did not value women at all. And she's living in a foreign nation, not in Israel. But here's the truth is that sometimes life does suck, right? Now, I will not tell you life sucks and then you die, but I will tell you sometimes life sucks because there are hard things that we walk through in life. And it seems like a lot of it hit Naomi really closely together and some pretty horrific things, loss of a spouse and loss of children, right? That's rough. Sometimes life does suck. So we have to ask ourselves, how do we respond? How do we respond to difficult circumstances? So this is one of my favorite verses when it comes to responding to difficult circumstances because this is a verse that really spoke to me when I was going through some difficult circumstances. It's Romans 8, verse 28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, so I love God, I hope all of you in here love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now a lot of us try and end it right there and just say, yay, everything works according to God's plan, all things works to good, but, but it continues, for those who are called according to his purpose. So we love God and we're called according to his purpose and he will work things for the good. I believe I'm called. I believe each of you are called. Now, whether or not we're responding to that call in our lives is a different question for a different sermon. Maybe Simon will preach that one. Uh, he, he could, you guys. Simon is an awesome guy. He's so talented. But this verse was so comforting to me in the loss of my dad. I was 21 years old when my dad passed away. Now, at the time, I didn't view myself as young, but of course, with some age and distance from that, I realized that was very young, especially for the loss of a parent. And I was in this place in life that uh, I, I didn't really have the relationship with God that I ought, and I was kind of living for myself. Um, and of course, you know, when your dad passes away that young, it's kind of like a punch in the gut. And I had a great relationship with my dad. I know not everybody has that, but I had a great relationship with him. And it was really, really hard for me to lose him. But I took comfort knowing that God does work all things for the good. I mentioned my, my younger brother, Nate, a little bit earlier. Nate at the time was even further from God than I was. He was into some stuff that um, he would tell you today that, that he is ashamed of but God redeemed him from that because he used my dad's passing to bring Nate back. He used my dad's passing for me to say, okay, my dad was a man of God. I'm gonna step up and I'm gonna be the man of God that I know I can be. So God works all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that's not the only hardship I've suffered. A few years ago, I lost both my grandparents within a week of each other, both on my mom's side. That's hard. Crystal lost her grandma just before we moved to Savannah. And then just early this year, she lost her grandpa. Hardship happens, you guys. Life sucks sometimes. But we know 
that if we will trust in God, he works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so that's what I hold on to in those times of of difficult circumstances. The question I have for you is, do you trust him? Do you trust that God can bring good out of those difficult circumstances? Because you get to choose how to respond when hardship comes. And again, those are very intentional words. You choose. Some of us feel like we're not in control of our choices, but we are. We may not be in control of our circumstances, but we choose how to respond to them. So you get to make the choice. Are you going to trust God in the midst of the hardship or are you going to let it overwhelm you? You get to choose how to respond when hardship comes because it does come. Now, Naomi chooses change. She has lived this life that sucks and she is ready for something to be different. So in verse six, it says, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now this is very interesting that she's ready to return from Moab and also that the Lord has visited his people and given them food because it's evidence of repentance. Because remember, God does not bless the Israelites unless they're in right standing with him. And we see this throughout the nation's history where they have these periods of straying away from God and then they realize the horrible choice that they've made and they repent and they return to him. And it's kind of this back and forth zigzag that really all of us live through, right? Because I think all of us, uh, maybe at one point or another in our lives, maybe even currently are in this place where we kind of say, okay, God, I don't need you right now. But then we realize what a mistake we've made and we turn back to him. And that's what repentance means is a turning back. And so that, that Israel has food, is evidence of their repentance. I also believe, though, it's repentance for Naomi as a person as well as the repentance of the nation because Naomi says, I'm going to turn back. I know that the choice my husband made in leading us out here was the wrong choice. I'm going to turn back. So I believe that Naomi knows, okay, it's time to change. I'm repenting. I know it was wrong. I'm going to go back. I see that my people have repented. They know what they were doing is wrong, and they are ready to follow God again. So she returns and it says in verse seven that she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, what's really interesting to me is that it just lists the daughters-in-law. They are childless at this point. Now, we're not entirely sure from the passage if that 10-year period was the total time that they lived in Moab or just the time that they were married. Regardless, in that, uh, that time of the world, children were viewed very differently than a lot of people view them today. Children were viewed as a blessing, right? Children were, and honestly, not a lot of people had a way to stop that from happening. So uh, children, children just came, right? And that was a good thing. But they married sickly and pining. And they're childless. So I don't know if it was a short marriage or a long one, but regardless, I, I believe if there were children we would have been told. So not only are they in this terrible situation, they also have no children. There's, there's no legacy. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And she, she's encouraging them here to remarry. She says, I have nothing for you. I have nothing left. 
please go back to your parents' house. Now, clearly they must have been young enough at this time to still be able to remarry. And so she's encouraging them, go back. Go back and remarry. Stay with your people. They said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. See, because they've, they've had some time to get to know Naomi. They've had some time to, to know a little bit who she is, and they've probably heard a little bit about Israel. And they think, maybe we should stick with Naomi. They have a choice, and this is a huge turning point in their lives. And, and we'll see the, the two paths that they can go down here. Naomi said, turn back, my daughters, Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. See, at this time in the world, it was very, very common for uh, those women who were widowed to be married by another member of the family to carry on the family name. But Naomi is childless. She has no other sons. She had sickly and pining and they followed their names, right? They're gone. And she says, I have no hope for you. I have nothing for you. She has nothing for Orpah and Ruth. They're without an heir. They're without a provider. They are hopeless. I want to invite you to to step into their shoes again. Have you ever been in this situation where you just feel hopeless? Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a job or some other kind of hardship where it just feels hopeless. Can you identify with that? I know I can. There have been lots of times in my life where it's either through the, the loss of a job or something else or some kind of hardship that just it feels so hopeless. How do you get through that? And this is what Naomi and Orpah and Ruth are going through right now. And so here's how they respond. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, it's implied here that it, this is a goodbye kiss, right? Orpah's leaving. Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods return after your sister-in-law. I think it's really interesting here, especially as we get into the next verses, her people and her gods. She has gone back to Moab, right? And we know from earlier that, that Moab is not really a place I would want to live, right? I don't think the gods of Moab are gods I would want to worship. I don't think the people there are people that I would really want to associate with. But Orpah thinks that maybe this is the best choice for her because Ruth and Naomi, they've they've got nothing left. So Orpah goes back to Moab and back to what's broken. How many of us face hardship and instead of choosing to press in and to receive what God might have for us, to take a leap of faith and say, okay, God, I'm gonna put it in your hands. How many of us return to what's broken? We say, well, this doesn't work, but at least it's familiar. At least I know what's happening. And so we make this choice to go back to maybe a broken relationship or broken family, broken circumstances. But it's time to change, and Ruth knows that. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, 
my God. Orpah's going back to her people and her gods. Ruth's saying, that's not who I am anymore. She's embracing a new identity. She is choosing to be something more than what she was born as. She's choosing life, which is really ironic in the midst of all this death around her, but I believe that that is the gospel at its core, is that you can choose life in the midst of death. She was known as Ruth the Moabitess, but I think that in this statement, she's saying, no, I'm not Ruth the Moabitess, I'm Ruth the Israelite. Because there is precedence in scripture for a foreigner to embrace the custom of the Israelites and to even be considered one of them, right? There's precedence for this. And God did not have the same restrictions on those people who said, no, I'm gonna choose to be an Israelite. I'm going to choose to live the way that you live. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean it was easy for them, but God, even back then said, here's my chosen people. If you want to be one of them, you can choose to join them. He does the same thing for us today. If you want to have life, you can choose to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Just like Ruth chose to say, I'm not the Moabite. I'm not from that nation that is born of rape and that is full of cursing and that's full of idolatry. I want to be something better. She has had this conversion experience, which I believe is very much like what happens to us today when we choose to live for Jesus and choose to leave the old life behind. So step into her shoes once again. Are you in a place where life sucks? Are you in a place where you want to see change? Are you ready to leave what is broken behind? Do you need that new way of life? Because Jesus offers it. So Ruth continues here and she's talking to Naomi. She's going even further and she says, where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Do you remember what Ruth's name means? Friendship. That's a true friend. I'm gonna stick with you until the day that I die. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. As the late great Stan Lee would have said, enough said, right? I mean, what, what words did Naomi have to that? What can you say? Ruth has made up her mind. She is not going to be who she was. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now remember, it's been 10 years since my delight has lived among them. The apple of my eye. Now, if she had embraced this identity, then she probably looked very different when she lived among the Israelites than she's looking now because it has been 10 years, 10 rough years. She has lost her husband. She has lost two sons. That kind of ages you. Have you ever seen somebody when they've gone through some kind of hardship, when they are, are grieving, they don't look good, do they? Like you can see it in their face. I think Naomi has had such a rough 10 years that it has actually physically altered her appearance. The years have taken their toll and they don't even recognize her anymore. They don't recognize my delight anymore. And she says to them, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me my delight. Call me Mara 
for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now, Mara means bitterness. She says, I don't feel like my delight. I feel bitter. And some of us respond that way to hardship, don't we? We respond to hardship and say, I'm done. I'm out. I don't want anything to do with this anymore. And we are in this place of bitterness. And that is a dangerous identity. It's a very, very dangerous identity because what we believe is the most true thing about us. And again, neuroscience backs this up, right? What we believe informs our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And so if she says, call me bitter, that's my name now. She is not in a healthy state of mind. And she is embracing a new identity as well, but it's a very, very unhealthy one. And I would caution you in your thought life to be very, very careful about how you think about yourself and about how you think about those around you. There are thoughts like, I'm not good enough. I'll tell you, this is one that I struggled with for years. You know what happens when you think I'm not good enough? You're not. You don't try because you think, well, I'm not good enough. Or I'll never be able to do that. Well, why would you even try if you know that you'll never be able to do it? These are self-fulfilling prophecies. But so many of us are in this place where we tell ourselves these things. We've adopted this identity and that's how we live. But I wanna tell you, if you struggle with that, if you struggle with these negative thoughts or this place of bitterness, there is hope for you. There's hope for these defeated mentalities that so many of us live with because we don't have to allow our circumstances to determine our identity. And Naomi and Ruth are such a beautiful picture of this. Ruth is in these dire circumstances and she says, no, I'm Ruth the Israelite. Naomi's in the same circumstances and she says, I'm bitter. You have a choice. You get to choose how you respond and your circumstances are not the most true thing about you. Again, look at Romans 8, 28. God works it all for the good. What God says about you is the most true thing about you. But Naomi has embraced her circumstances. She has embraced the bitterness. She says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me delightful or my delight when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She's embraced the bitterness and that's what she wants to be known as now is bitter. Will you allow yourself to live in bitterness? Because let's be honest, it's easy to do that, right? Misery loves company. It's easy to get in this place of hardship and difficulty and to just stay there because you know what? So-and-so wronged you or God should have shown up and done this. Why did God take this person out of my life? easy to be bitter. It's an easy choice, but it's not the right choice. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, what's really interesting here is that she's called still Ruth the Moabite, and, and I think that this is really interesting because Ruth has changed, 
but not everyone sees it yet. She's still the foreigner. She's still the Moabite. She's still from this wicked people. But your identity is not how others see you as well. And we're going to see as we continue throughout the book of Ruth that even though they may see her as Ruth the Moabite, that's not how she's going to choose to live. She chooses to live differently because your identity is how God sees you. And because of her choice, God sees Ruth. He, he calls her friend. He calls her daughter. He'll do the same for you. And finally, they're back at Bethlehem with the barley harvest, which is, again, the house of bread. And, and it's just so beautiful that they're returning to the house of bread at the beginning of the harvest. So there is, there is a season of plenty that is starting. There is hope on the horizon. The symbolism in this book is just so amazing because God's saying, you thought things were desperate, but let me tell you, I have something coming. And it's no coincidence that Ruth and Naomi get back in town just as they start to bring in the harvest, as they start to live in this place of plenty. So let me ask you, where is your hope? Where do you put your hope? Do you put your hope in, in what you can do, in how you see yourself? in what others do around you? Do you put your hope in God? Do you allow him to speak to you? Do you choose to believe what he says about you? Do you know who you are? Because God does, but we don't always listen. So I believe that God has so much more for us than we could choose on our own. So I want to tell you today that, that we, we always end with this idea of go change your world, right? That doesn't happen unless you choose to make it happen. It doesn't happen unless you say, okay, God, I'm ready. Let me hear from you who I am. And you choose to take the step of faith. You choose to say, I'm going to leave what's broken behind and I'm going to step into the promise of what you have for me. So I want to pray for you guys. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you that you do love us. Thank you that you are with us always. Thank you that you you speak to us about our true identity. I ask that you would speak to each and every one of us in this room, that you'd help us to seek you, to know you, to trust you, to receive from you that identity, that name, that, that significance of who we are in you. Lord, I ask for forgiveness personally for for when I have turned my back on you, when I have chosen to be bitter or chosen to believe the lie. I ask for your truth to penetrate my heart. I pray that your truth would just be here in this place and that, Father, you would stir the hearts of the men and women in this room to choose life. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.